Alrighty. Chapter 18. So if you were with us last week, you would have caught that we looked at the wrath of God, really, the, the cup of God's wrath that Jesus anticipates drinking. It's a heavy concept to consider, but Jesus is going to decide to, instead of doing what his will is, which would be to avoid the pain of the moment, he's going to do the Father's will, and he's going to go through with the plan, the glorious plan of God, knowingly, willingly, calmly go with his captors, and go to the cross. Now, as he goes to the cross, he, he walks away from his disciples, but there's a few who follow. He's predicted earlier that none of them would come with him, that they'd all scatter. But there are two that you will notice who actually do come with him part way of the journey. And that's what we're going to pick up on tonight. And we're going to be focusing in particularly on Peter. Um, we love Simon Peter. Um, we see him pop up in all kinds of scenarios throughout the events of Jesus' life. And if there's one disciple that's more relatable than any of them, or we at least get more details on his words and his actions and his stuff-ups and his uh, awkward moments, um, we get more detail on Peter than anyone else. And so we want to spend a bit of time tonight um, thinking about Peter, and particularly this moment for him of his denials of Jesus. Um, so we're going to kind of slow down and kind of come back to this moment. Um, there's some details that come for us in verses 12 um, through to 14 where we see that Jesus is taken to Annas, um, the father-in-law of the high priest. He's an old man. Um, this is, he's going to be then sent off to Caiaphas. Um, and Caiaphas is the one who's made some prophecies here. It's going to highlight God's sovereign plan um, through the whole of Jesus' life. Um, but he's not alone, and as Jesus gets brought, he's been arrested, and as he gets brought to the high priest's house, um, we notice, and you pick it up there in verse 15, that two of the disciples have come with him. So two out of the remaining 11 are still following. Okay, and look at verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple. Now, when John, who writes this gospel, refers to himself, he calls himself another disciple or sometimes the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's just the way he refers to himself and you can track the way he does that through this gospel. So you've got Peter and you've got John who go with Jesus as he's arrested to the high priest's house, which is almost like a pre-trial. He's not formally in the courtroom yet. He's gone to the high priest's house, but it's almost like the trial begins here. Um, now look what it says there, because the disciple was known to the high priest, that's John, he went in with Jesus to the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest, he mentions it a few times, just so you know, um, uh, he, the other disciple who was known he, uh, to the high priest um, came back and he spoke to the servant girl on duty there and he brought Peter in. So Peter ends up being allowed to come into the courtyard um, with John and with Jesus and with the high priest as this questioning happens. Um, so it's likely a house with a large courtyard um, and it's like the pre-trial kind of scenario that's happening here. Now the first thing that happens for Peter is he's approached by a servant girl. So it's a, it's a young girl, and in the first century, therefore, her being a servant, like a slave, and a young girl, would have meant that in that culture at that time, she wouldn't have had a lot of clout or a lot of authority. Peter would have not needed to be afraid of her. She wouldn't have been able to do anything to him. 
And yet she's the one who first comes to Peter and asks him the question as to whether he is with Jesus. Look, have a look at the question that she asks, um, verse 17. Um, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She says to him. So she's, she's asking it in an interesting way. She's anticipating a no kind of answer. It's hard to know exactly what's behind her question, but, but it's, it's almost like you'd be silly, wouldn't you, to be with Jesus as he's been arrested? Are you really with this guy? So that's the question that she puts to Peter. Um, you're not with this guy, Jesus, are you as well? And look what, Jesus, look what Peter says. He replied, I am not. So there's strike one for Peter. The first time he gets put on the spot in this scenario where Jesus has been arrested, a servant girl simply asks him, are you with Jesus? And he says, no, I'm, I'm not. It's almost like it just slips out of his mouth. Yeah? He chickens out and crumbles. He buckles when the pressure is on. And the pressure is on not from someone with authority and with clout, just from a young servant girl. He didn't need to be afraid, but it just kind of slips out of his mouth and it's like the first lie that leads to other lies. You might notice lies do that with you. Is you, you tell the first one and then sometimes you feel like you just got to keep going with the lie and this is what happens for Peter. He, the first one has slipped out and he's, he's, he's like he's failed the first test here. And, which, and it kind of sets the scene for the second and the third denials. Um, it, it mentions there, look at verse 18. Uh, you can't help but to see that John's recounting of the details here kind of help you feel the chilliness of the moment. Emotionally, he says it was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire um, that they'd made to keep warm. Um, Peter was also standing there with them, warming himself. And then John jumps to Jesus. He just doesn't just continue with Peter and get the second and third denial, although they would have happened basically right off the back of each other, one, two, three. John, as he's recounting the event, jumps to Jesus and then jumps back to Peter. And we'll consider why he might be doing that in just a minute. But let's look at verse 19. Meanwhile, you know, while Peter is denying Jesus, how's Jesus going? It's standing, courageous, going through with the plan. Well, he's doing all right. Look at verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So it's likely Jesus is getting a full range of questions here from the high priest about a whole range of things that were very public. And Jesus's response to the high priest is interesting. He gets a slap in the face for his response. But I don't think Jesus is being rude here or even uncooperative or insulting in any way. I think he's actually appealing for correct procedure. You see, this is like the beginnings of the Jewish trial. And I think he's calling for there to be witnesses that would come and speak about the kind of life that he's been living. And so that's the way he responds to the high priest. Look at verse 20. He says, I have spoken openly to the world, he replied. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews could um, come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they will know. So I think, I think that's what is happening here for Jesus. Jesus is actually almost challenging the high priest that he's got him on his own and he's just starting to question him 
on his own. Jesus, I think, is appealing for a fair trial. He's kind of, I think, boldly pointing out that what the high priest is doing here is not acting out a fair trial. It's not just in any way. So I think Jesus is challenging the high priest with what he's doing. So it's almost the opposite of what Peter's doing. Peter's crumbling. Jesus is standing and saying, now what you're doing here is not right. Um, My ministry has been public. My ministry has always been honest. Let's get some witnesses in here and let's do this properly. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Now, the response for that answer that Jesus gives, you get there in verse 22. Um, When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby, so one of the high priest's lackeys, slaps Jesus across the face. Um, Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. So I don't know how that worked. Maybe the high priest just turned to him and gave him that look. It's time to slap the man in front of me or whatever, whether he just lashed out and did it. But um, he obviously felt like the high priest wasn't receiving the respect that he should have. Um, Now, what happens here? Does Jesus then crumble and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I really shouldn't have corrected the high priest. I really shouldn't have appealed for a fair trial. No, Jesus just stands. He's ground again. He does not back down. So he's been slapped or maybe even punched. Um, And then you read on, verse 23, Jesus says, if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas, sent bound to Caiaphas, uh, then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Jesus responds by saying, but by basically taking the hit, staying tough and saying, what you just did by striking me was wrong as well. You, you shouldn't have done that. Tell me what I'm doing wrong here. So he's standing, he's strong, he's not apologising, he challenges the high priest's actions again. He can take a hit and stand there. If your picture of Jesus is entirely gentle Jesus, meek and mild, let the children come to me, which is true. But if that's your picture entirely and you haven't got the picture of a man who can take a hit and stay standing for the truth and have the courage to go through with the glorious plans of the Father, adjust your image and see Jesus as a man who's strong enough to do that. He stands for truth no matter what the cost, he's going to take the hit. There's, there's Jesus. Now let's go back to Peter. How's Peter going? And that's what John is doing here with this account. Look at verse 25. Meanwhile, he uses that word again. Meanwhile, while Jesus is staying strong, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him. So they're standing around a fire bin, as you do, a bit of chit-chat with whoever's around there trying to warm themselves up. And they say to him again, um, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? So it's a similar framed question. In fact, in one of the other Gospels, you get a little bit of extra detail. They say, we're pretty sure you are because your accent is just like his. You Galilean guys, you all sound the same. So they're saying, no, we're pretty sure that you're with Jesus. Are you, are you seriously not with Jesus? That's what they say to him. They're kind of coming at him with the very same question. How does Peter respond? He denied it, saying, I am not. It couldn't have been clearer. I'm not. I've got nothing to do with Jesus. And then look what happens the third time. Verse 26. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, 
didn't I see you in the garden? So now it's not just people saying, we think you're with Jesus, you sound like Jesus. It's someone who says, no, I saw you, mate, a few hours ago. You were there in the garden of Gethsemane. Yep, you were the guy, weren't you, who pulled out your sword and cut off my brother or my cousin's ear. I saw it all go down, mate. We saw you there. We know, we know it's you. Like, it's, it's really direct. How do you get out of this one? Well, Peter's just stuck in his rut of crumbling and lying and he can't get out. And so he continues and here comes strike three. Peter says, again, or just says, again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Now, if you haven't been tracking with the details of this story, you might be like, well, that's a bit interesting. A rooster crowed. What's that got to do with anything? Well, it's got a fair bit to do with it because just a few hours earlier, Jesus has actually predicted, predicted that Peter would do just this. And, and that after Peter went and denied Jesus for three, three times, there would be a rooster that crows, you know? And so can you imagine that moment for Peter? It would have still been ringing in his ears what Jesus had just said to him because it was off the back of Peter claiming that he was going to be the one who would never fall away. He was going to be the one who would stand. He would die for Jesus. The rest of these guys, you know, Peter says, the rest of these guys might bail, but not me, Peter says. I'll never go anywhere. And Jesus goes, mate, tonight, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. So as Peter does this, can you imagine what's going on for him as he hears the rooster crow? It would all come crashing down, wouldn't it? There'd be a dawning that happens for Peter. In fact, in Luke's gospel, you get a few little bits of details. Love here and the kids having fun over there. You get a few little bits of details um, that happen around this moment. In Luke 22, I'll just throw them up for you. Um, Peter replied, I don't know what you're talking about. So this is the third denial. Um, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And look at this bit. The Lord, that's Jesus, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you imagine that moment? You've just denied knowing him three times and Jesus just does this thing where he turns and he just looks Peter straight in the eye. Cop that eyeball from Jesus. Like, it's, it's insane. It would have just melted him, yeah? That's a, that's a death stare or maybe a life stare. I don't know what you want to call it, but it would have just melted him. Um, and then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows, today you will disown me three times. And then Peter does this thing, which makes sense, doesn't it? He went outside and he wept bitterly. I actually think that's pretty key. That's pretty key. He goes outside and he weeps and he weeps bitterly, meaning he just, it, it, it wrecked him. The, the dawning of just what he'd done to the one he loves, to the one he believes is the Messiah, the one he promised he would never turn from. As he denies him and Jesus looks at him, Peter just heads outside and he weeps bitterly. And just on this moment, I think this is worth reflecting on, I do think this is an indication of genuine repentance for Peter. Weeping isn't always repentance. There's different types of sorrow that you can feel. You can feel so sorry for yourself and so sorry that your mistake has wrecked your life and your relationships that you can sob your heart out. But really, it's what the Bible would call worldly sorrow. That's what Paul calls it. 
Um, but here I think what's going on for Peter is what you might call godly sorrow, where he's weeping for how he has offended God. He's weeping for how he has denied and betrayed Jesus. And I think it's godly sorrow because of what happened next. You know, what happens for the rest of Peter's life. I think this is genuine repentance. There's a brokenness in Peter because how he's impacted Jesus, how he's failed to honour the one who's deserving of all of the honouring of Peter's life. And here's Peter in this moment, crumbling. When you compare what Peter does to Jesus, it's a stark reality, isn't it? Just think with me that for a minute. There's Peter cowering before the questions, denying everything. He's scared, he's frightened. Um, he's scared of young servant girls. He's worried about what people would think of him. He's worried about what people do to him. And then here's Jesus, who stands up to the questioning, denies nothing. He's calm, he's in control, he's unfazed, he's tough enough to take a hit and keep standing. And he does it before people who have got the authority to do serious damage to him. You've got Peter over here. Though he intends to stand for Jesus, he's weak. And he's flaky in the moment and he's embarrassed and he's ashamed and he denies God. But you've got Jesus, courageous, steadfast, unashamed, faithful, holding to the plans of God. It, John wants us to see Peter for who he is and to actually see a, a, almost a pitiful picture of the reality of this man. I mean, what, what happened to him anyway? Because Peter, was, he just went from, you know, the, the crazy vigilant soldier for Jesus. Literally, just an hour or two before, Peter pulls his sword out. He's going to fight till the end for Jesus. He lops the ear off that servant of the high priest. Whether he was aiming for the head or the ear, we don't know. He's either really accurate or shockingly accurate. But either way, he's passionate and he's going he's to use anything he can to stand for Jesus. He's going to die for Jesus. And, and just before that, you know, you get back in chapter 13, Jesus, you know, Peter's saying, I'll lay my life down for you, Jesus, even if I have to die. And here he is crumbling. Like, what's happened? What's happened for him? Some would suggest that Peter has, has, has literally walked away from Jesus, turned his back on Jesus, decided that he wasn't going to follow Jesus. I don't buy that. I actually think this is a, 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 de, a determined, sincere man doing everything he can in his own strength to keep following Jesus, but just failing miserably in his attempt to do it. I mean, he's there, isn't he? He's in the courtyard. He might be following and kind of be from a distance and stuffing up, but he's still determined to keep following Jesus. It's just that in the moment when the pressure's on, the fear of people and what they would think of him the fear of people and what they can do to him just gets the better of him. He ends up being more concerned, I think, about what other people think of him and more committed to, therefore, his, his own reputation and the own, his own protection of his life than he is Jesus. He's more fearful of people than God. Now, here's the moment where we get to decide, what do you do with this? It's, it's quite a stark portrait, isn't it, of, of a man who's so passionately determined to follow Jesus and verbally and physically commits to doing it, but then spectacularly fails just moments later. What do, you, what do we do with this? 
Because I'll tell you the easiest thing in the world to do, and you, you, you will be tempted to do this as I am tempted to do it, is to just look at Peter, shake your head, say, what a shocker. And the moral of the story is, let's not be like Peter. Yeah, that'd be a really easy thing to do. Let's just not be like that, like the laughing stock of the Bible. And and in doing that, let's instead, let's be like Jesus, not like Peter. And in doing that, you can elevate yourself to a position where you you think, yeah, I'm not going to be like Peter. I won't deny Jesus. Yeah. But I want you to attempt to humbly consider your own heart right now and ask yourself the question whether you're much different from Peter at all. And I think this is what we need to do. We need to consider how actually, in many ways, you might not be identical to Peter, but could you consider with me in this moment how you might be very similar, just like Peter, in many ways. You might even be going through a time right now where you're feeling really strong in the Lord, not many stuff-ups recently, you feel like you're on the up and up and you're going to stay strong for Jesus. But the, the truth is, this could be you tomorrow finding yourself in a situation where you fail miserably, feeling just like Peter tomorrow. I think this is the reality for us. We can be fickle and we can be weak and we can be more concerned about what people think of us so that we can go from determined and strong and passionate to failing miserably and falling on our face just like Peter within minutes. Do you see that in yourself? Can you consider the words and the actions that you sometimes use or may soon use that mean you actually are just like Peter? Do you ever find yourself in a situation where, I found it recently in hanging out with neighbours, where there was a really strong critique about what Christians who believe this and that about sexuality and this and that, you know, there was, and, and then the, 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 the whole attention came to me and the question was, Tim, your church is not like that, is it? You know, it's one of those moments where it's like, oh my goodness, here we go. I'm like... I thought, you know, you you find yourself in those moments where you think you're trying to wiggle out of it maybe and you think, well, I don't really want to be associated with the people they're talking about because maybe I wouldn't say it exactly the same as those people or I wouldn't, you know, try and do things in the same way. But at a baseline level, yeah, the beliefs are the same. You know, and you get this opportunity where you have the chance to say, yeah, yeah, that is me or it's not. Do you find yourself in that situation where you've subtly kind of distanced yourself from other believers? who might be slightly different from you in your core beliefs or whatever, but they're your brothers and sisters, but you're wiggling away from them because you don't want your reputation to be damaged when you had the opportunity to go, yeah, actually, yeah, I'm just like that. That's me. That's my brothers and sisters. I believe the same things. Do you ever find yourself leading up to a weekend when someone says, oh, what are you up to this weekend? And you mention everything you're planning to do, except church or you rock up on Monday and someone says how was your weekend and you talk about everything you did except the fact that you gathered with God's people and you know you're doing it it almost surprises you as you do it and it doesn't come out of your mouth it's a subtle denial but it's denial and for you this is important and Jesus is central but you find yourself denying you know do you do that yeah, you're just like Peter. 
What about your actions? Do you, do you find yourself denying Jesus in big ways or subtle ways with your actions to gain the acceptance of others or the approval of others? Do sometimes you find yourself drinking or drinking too much to just blend in and be accepted with the mob? Do you sometimes find yourself using language or perving or disrespecting to just kind of be one of the boys? You're just like Peter. Do you find yourself giving yourself sexually out of fear of rejection you're just like Peter. Do you sometimes miss gathering with God's people because you've wanted to and accept an invitation to something else to stay in the good books with others? It's just like Peter. Do you find yourself spending your money on the kind of things so that you would be seen to be doing well by others? And that can be a whole range of things. We make decisions about what we do with the finances entrusted to us. But do you find yourself using those finances for the sake of reputation and, and the sake of ongoing acceptance and doing that whilst not giving generously to what lies at the very heart of God's purposes here on earth, the spread of his gospel, the growth of his church? Do you find yourself just subtly, generally passionate about many things but kind of apathetic sometimes towards Jesus' things? It's just like Peter. We deny Jesus just like Peter, sometimes in big ways and obvious ways, but most of the time just in small ways, in subtle ways, in the little decisions of what we do and what we don't do and what we say and what we don't say. We're just like Peter. We're keen to follow. You're keen to honour Jesus. But you find yourself so keen also for the acceptance of people that you end up denying him. Truth is, this is a room full of Peters. And if you can't see yourself in Peter at all, there may be a really decent amount of self-righteousness that's got a grip on your heart, that you think of yourself more highly than you ought, like Paul would say we ought not do. To be humbled and be able to acknowledge our own disposition and our own ability to fail spectacularly is really important. When you see a brother or sister go down or you hear of a brother or sister that's gone before you and failed, instead of giggling and shaking your head and saying, oh my goodness, what a shocker, I'll never do that, we say this instead, there but by the grace of God go I. Because that's the truth of us. Therefore, to come away from this passage and say to ourselves, okay, let's just not be like Peter, is not going to work. Yep. Because we're just like Peter. We cannot put our hope in our ability to be better than Peter. You with me? So where, where can our hope be put if it's not in our own strength to be better? Our hope lies in a God who chooses to work with people just like Peter. Yep, that's it. A generous, merciful God who is in the business of being merciful and forgiving. 
and, and continually wanting to restore after failure and wanting to go on and transform lives. This is who Jesus is and this is what he's doing with you and, and, and as you understand his grace to you over and over again. The Christian life is not about simply getting to a point where you don't make any mistakes anymore and you can go, yes, I nailed it. I've, I've got this Christian. The Christian life is about noticing your failures, acknowledging them and getting back up in the forgiveness and grace of Jesus, receiving his restoration and pressing on and doing that over and over and over again. And that is where our growth is going to come from. That's where our transformation is going to come from. The humility that, that, that is not shocked when we fall on our face. Yeah, it's like, yeah, that's me. That's why I needed God to die for me. Yep, I'm just like Peter. And, and I get a sense of that among us. We're people who are keen and passionate to follow Jesus, but we will fail and we will crumble. Our hope cannot be in our own strength. Our hope needs to be in our God who chooses to work with people just like us. He can work with humble Peters. He can work with people who, after they fail, weep bitterly. Instead of making excuses or blaming others and going down the track of the victim mentality, just going, oh, no, that's just me. Yeah, that, that just came out of my heart, that failure. And just coming to a gracious saviour again and celebrating his goodness to you. Our hope is in Jesus who, who brings three things for us. First and foremost, Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness. And he brings forgiveness and, and, and ultimately um, showers us in his righteousness because he is the, we come to him and put our trust in him because he's the one who stood firm. He's the one that never denied. He's the one that lived perfectly faithful to the Father. And he did that not to put us to shame, but he did that on our behalf. So Jesus is standing there before the high priest. His response, his faithfulness to God, his righteousness, that is what is offered to us in exchange for our failure. And this is what lies right at the heart of the gospel, which is on display in the life of Peter. When you can acknowledge your own failure, you get to accept again the fact that Jesus is the one who comes and forgives, removes our failure and replaces it with his righteousness so that we bear his record. This is phenomenal. We get, we're forgiven and we get to exchange our failure for his success. That's why our hope is in Jesus. Yeah? He forgives and he restores relationship over and over again. And you're going to need that over and over again through the years. When you, when you do something that puts you in a place where you think, how could Jesus ever have me back? And maybe that's where you are right now. You, you've been there for a little while thinking, not after what I've done. How, how could he ever want to have me if he heard that thought or seen? How, and he wants you back. And he wants to, there you go, that's the kind of celebration. <laughs> he wants you to continually be restored to him. Are you aware of what happens next for Peter? Because after this denial, public denial three times, you wouldn't blame Jesus for turning to Peter, eyeballing him, saying, that's it, mate, you're off the team. You know, <laughs> no more. You're out, you're done. You obviously can't do this. But that is not the story of Peter, is it? 
The story of Peter is a story of restoration right back into the team and transformation over time. And to kind of illustrate that, I do want us to flick over a few pages towards the end of the gospel. So come to chapter 21 with me and have a look at the interaction that Jesus has with Peter after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And Jesus, you know, the boys have gone back to fishing, which tells you a little bit about what their thinking's happened. You know, they've gone back to fishing and Peter's interacting with, uh, Jesus is interacting with them. Have I been mixing up Peter and Jesus tonight? Oh, good. I just did it then. I thought, have I done that all night? Sometimes when I'm excited, I just mix up the names, try and guess what I'm trying to say. All right. Um, Look at chapter 21 and we'll go to verse 15 there. Um, and, And this is where Jesus gets to have this beautiful moment with Peter. In your NIV, it says Jesus reinstates Peter. But look at what happens. When they were finished eating and they're eating some fish, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. So Jesus asked him once, do you love me, mate? Peter goes, yeah, I love you. And then look what he does. Jesus says, feed my lambs. And then he, verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter Peter answers, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Second time, verse 17, the third time, Jesus, that is, said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, you know I love you. And Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. What do you think Jesus is doing here? I mean, it's hard not to, it's it's hard to miss it, isn't it? three times. Three times Peter's denied Jesus and so three times Jesus comes back to Peter and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he gets it out of him three times and no doubt in that Peter would be remembering, recalling his denials but in this moment being reinstated and understanding restoration. Now, over the years, a lot of people have made um, a lot out of sometimes the different word for love that gets used there. Uh, I I don't think that's what's happening. I think Jesus has just asked the same question three times because the two different words for love that Jesus uses there are used pretty interchangeably even in the book of John. That's just a little side note. Jesus has just come back to him and saying, and the reason why Peter's upset is not because Jesus has used a different Greek word for love there. Peter's upset and it says there, he's upset because Jesus asked him a third time. So here's Peter getting upset that he's been asked the question three times. How does he think Jesus felt when he denied him three times? But can you see here in this moment a gracious saviour who wants to reinstate, wants to restore, wants to assure Peter that he comes back in? Because look at them, what he goes on to. Each time he says, well, feed my sheep or take care of my lambs. In other words, if you're going to keep following me and you love me, then give yourself to my people. Shepherd the church. Build your brothers and sisters up. Be focused on God's people. And, and then he says, here's what's going to happen for you, Peter. It's, it's, going, to, it's going to go well. Peter's actually going to be able to follow Jesus. Um, look what he says. Um, verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went, um, and, and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. 
And John explains, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. You're going to have your arms stretched out and you're going to be led to a place where you do not want to go. And most people understand that to be Jesus saying to Peter, mate, you will be crucified. You will get to lay down your life for me. You know, so Peter, the one who's determined to have the privilege of following Jesus, he's going to get the chance to do this. Though you might consider the crucifixion of Peter to be heavy, and it would have been, Peter's going to get to follow Jesus to the end. So he's restored to Jesus. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Now, it's one thing, and I'm going to, um, oh yeah, got a little bit more. Um, It's one thing to kind of acknowledge that Jesus is gracious and merciful, and he forgives and he restores. But have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't simply just forgive and restore and then just leave people where they're at. Remember the interaction that Jesus has with the woman at the well? She's been caught in adultery. The bloke who was with her wasn't caught in adultery, but she's caught in adultery. And Jesus doesn't um, mix his words when he calls her out on her sin. Yeah. Um, But he starts by being really gracious to her and he says, I do not condemn you. Yep. So there's the grace, there's the forgiveness, there's the mercy. But he's not prepared to just leave her there. He says, I don't condemn you. And he says, now go and leave your life of sin. In other words, we have a saviour who comes and forgives and he restores, but he doesn't want to leave you where you are. He wants you to be transformed. He wants you to grow and he intends to instruct you in that direction. It's kind of what he's doing with Peter here. He's he's saying, mate, I want you to go on in this life. I want you to keep following me and I want you to die for me. In fact, that's what's going to happen. So if we're reflecting on how we're just like Peter and you've had a bit of a moment tonight where you've seen the reality um, and and how you actually are going to need to require Jesus' ongoing forgiveness and you're going to need to require his ongoing restoration, can you also know this? Jesus doesn't want you to just stay where you're at. He does want you to grow. He does want you to change and Jesus is going to instruct you for transformation. And that's going to work because he's going to come and live in you by his Holy Spirit and he intends to conform you in his likeness as the years go by. But I tell you what, the one thing that's going to help that happen is that when you fail, we humbly acknowledge it and we repent of our sin. And in that cycle of continual acknowledgement and repentance and restoration, there is hope of change where there's humble hearts for that. Jesus intends to change us and move us. And I want to kind of wrap up on actually Peter's words, because if you think about what happened for Peter, he's not only reinstated and restored by that moment for Jesus, but then Peter goes on to do what and be what? Well, Yeah, he's one of the key apostles of the church. He's the one who stands up at Pentecost in front of thousands and preaches the gospel. He's involved in miraculous healings in the name of Jesus. And he goes on to preach in such a way that the gospel really goes out in the first century and spreads beautifully. He then also writes some of scripture. So we've got two letters in the New Testament that are written by this stuff up, Peter, you know, one Peter and two Peter. And you know what he writes about in his letters? He writes all about how to deal with the fear that might be in your heart, um, the fear of people when you're trying to stand for Jesus. 
So if you're struggling to follow Jesus, can we learn from the guy who wrestled his whole life with it and even wrote instructions for Christians about how to stand up in the face of persecution and not buckle under pressure? Can I take you to one particular verse? If you've got a Bible, you might want to open it up to 1 Peter chapter 3. Otherwise, I will put the key part of it up on the screen here. And the context is exactly that. Like, Peter is writing in the first century to Christians who have got legitimate reason to fear what other people will do and say about them and to them because persecution of Christians is really on the up. And Peter writes to them to help them honour Jesus and stand for him and stay strong. And these are the words that he writes. He acknowledges the fear of it, which is really helpful. Um, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Now, just as he says that, he's, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 8 when he quotes that. And in Isaiah chapter 8, God's people, like they have been right through history, attempted to fear their neighbours, that they're going to get attacked by the neighbouring countries. And they're, they're tempted to fear in the kind of way that they would have alliances with those neighbours and get safety from their neighbours. But to do that would mean actually disregarding the Lord. It'd be the expense of staying true to Yahweh. And so the Isaiah, the prophet, actually speaks to God's people and says, do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Peter picks up on that instruction, brings it into the New Testament and says, here's the deal. Don't fear people and what they can do to you. Fear, I think this is what he's saying, fear God. I think that's what the next line means. Don't fear their threats, don't be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Some translations will say fear. Have a reverent fear of Jesus. So here's the thing, you will not be able to get rid of fear generally in your life. Fear is always going to be there, but Peter would instruct you to fear someone more than others. Yep. Who do you fear most? Who are you most worried about what they think of you? Who are you most concerned about what they might do to you? Because Peter, the one who's learned his lessons and failed his, in his own way, says, here's what I've learned, I think. It's about who you fear. And he says, you need to fear God. You need to have reverent fear for Jesus, which is the kind of fear that makes you want to come before him and bow before him. Not the kind of fear that want to make you run from him. It's reverent fear. It's healthy, reverent fear before God. And Peter says, this is the secret. You want to stop crumbling under pressure? Grow in your reverent fear of Jesus. Now, you might not like that term. You might not like that concept. It might not sit with your picture of Jesus very well. It's, it, it can be tricky to wrestle with. But this is the way Peter's going to encourage us. Why would you fear Jesus? Well, in the end, you're going to stand before Jesus. So if you're not concerned about what he thinks about you now, don't worry. There will be a day that comes where you'll find yourself standing before the risen Lord Jesus and you'll realise that you ought to have spent every waking hour being more concerned about what he thinks of you than anyone else. Jesus says, don't be afraid of the ones who can kill the body. 
Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, chances are, it's likely that you and I in our lifetime are probably not going to be killed for following Jesus. The worst we'll get is reputational or social sabotage, you know. The, the, the worst we'll get likely, I don't know, I'm not being prophetic here, things could change radically in our lifetime and they might, but likely the worst you and I will get will be social things. Yep. And you can spend your lifetime fearing those social things or we can turn our eyes to God and be most concerned about him. Take a long view on life. Picture this. Your life is over and you're standing in front of Jesus. Your life is being examined, unedited, exposed before the one who's seen everything. You tell me what will matter most. It's what Jesus thinks of you. So live with a healthy concern of what he sees and how he feels and how he would have you live. Reverent fear of him would cause you to want to live your days in the power of his spirit, trying to honour him and stand for him the best you can. Live for an audience of one instead of all the people who are watching who you're tempted to be most concerned about. We will be like Peter. We will crumble and we will fail. And it's so good to know there is forgiveness and there is restoration constantly. But we do want to grow like Peter grew. We do want to be transformed so that as the months and years tick by, you can stand for Jesus with more strength. You've fallen on your face long enough to learn how to get back up and keep going and change the way you live. And wouldn't that be awesome that as the years tick by, we can look back and we could see transformation happening in us that means Jesus is getting more of the glory that he's completely worthy of from our lives. Yeah. Let me pray that that would be the case. Father God, thank you for this event of the life of Peter, a brother who's gone before us and you know, the details of his failures. Lord, protect us from shaking our heads at the failures of our brothers and sisters. Please, Lord, by your spirit, help us to be humble and grow humble. Help us to be able to acknowledge our sin. Help us to repent properly and weep with bitterness for how we have dishonoured you and your name and Lord, would we experience over and over again the fresh beauty of your restoration. And Lord, would you not leave us as we are? Would you intend to continue to change us by your spirit? And Lord, would we be able to see your work in us and through us? Would you change us so we can stand in a way that actually really does bring you honour with our lives, but we're in desperate need of you and your work through us, Lord. Please have your way with us. Amen.